a hungry teenager who hasn't had a snack in a while. They get a little surly sometimes. Not like that. This Jesus is difficult to deal with because of exactly who he is. Peter's going to call it, he's a rock of offense. We in church kind of parlance today say a stumbling block. He is going to, because of his person, be completely challenging to every part of who I am. He's going to challenge my life. He's going to be a rock of offense that I will either be crushed by now or later. In fact, that term is actually used first, right after the section that Matthew quotes here in verse 6. We're really going to look at at kind of four ways that Jesus is an offense to people. Four ways in this section that Jesus is that rock of offense, a stumbling block, a difficulty for the human person to interact with. And the first is, uh, Jesus, Jesus is offensive because he was indeed born of a virgin. Tragically offensive. And we'll talk about that in a second. But let's look at the text. Start at the beginning here, verse 1. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 18. Look at the wrong section. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. All right, here, here's the birth narrative. Here's how it happens. When his mother Mary had been betrothed. Well, okay, we need to talk about betrothal. Because betrothal today is very different than what it was back then. Right? Back then, well, let's start with today, right? What is betrothal today, engagement today, in modern American culture? It's a decision that may or may not be entered into lightly. It's marked by one very expensive purchase in the process, but that can be given back and returned. And it's usually marked with an increased, uh, we'll say, uh, sexual activity, sadly to say. Right? That's oftentimes today in American culture what betrothal has come to mean. It's taken lightly, can be entered into easily, it can be gotten out of easily, and it's already filled with sexual activity. Not a wholesome thing. Betrothal in this time, very, very different. It was a one-year period of engagement, and it was unbelievably serious. To the point where, actually, if you see, uh, he tells us that they were betrothed, and then he starts calling them husband and wife. That's how serious engagement was in the ancient Near East in this time. It's so serious, again, the idea would have been, it would have looked like Mary had been unfaithful, and so he would have to have divorced her. They're not even married yet, and he would still have to divorce her. Again, betrothal is a really, really big deal. One full year of being engaged to be married, to not enjoying any of the benefits of marriage, to just getting comfortable with the commitment of marriage. And that's really what it is, and would be very good for many young men today, wouldn't it, to get accustomed to commitment for a little bit, right? The wife still lived at home with her parents, the husband still worked in his normal job, but they lived apart, there was no sexual activity, but of greatest seriousness. All right, so Mary is betrothed to Joseph, and we find out in this passage a little bit about who Joseph is. He adores Mary. This is part of the story that you don't really hear all the time. He absolutely loves her, right? He absolutely loves her because we're going to find out there's a huge problem that shows up in just the next section. Before they came together, so they're actually chaste as they're supposed to be. Uh, They're practicing proper sexual purity prior to marriage, the way that the Bible tells us they're supposed to. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, she's found a child. That's a bit problematic, isn't it? 
Because Joseph's going to know, well, in every other case in human existence, when a child shows up, it means because there's been some kind of stuff happening on the side. And if I'm not part of that, it means there's somebody else. And in his day, he had two options for what that was to be done. During uh, an engagement, if a woman got pregnant during engagement, he could either publicly take her to court and sue her for a divorce. It was very public, it was very shaming, and it ruined her life forever. Or he could just wait, wait until that year is actually up or later in on it, and then privately divorce her off on the side. Just a couple of witnesses after they get married. And you find out Joseph absolutely adores this woman. He doesn't want to take her through the public shame of a trial. He actually tries to take care of her, even though she seemingly has been unfaithful. He's going to wait and and do this. And the thing that's amazing is that he's still not even sorted this all out in his head when the angel's there. He's still wrestling with, how do I handle this woman that I love that seemingly has been unfaithful? And you've got to think about how those conversations happened, right? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, just seriously, emotively step into that conversation. Mary sits down and is like, Joseph, you're not going to believe this. And he's like, shoot, what? He's like, no, seriously, you're not going to believe this. And he's like, what? I'm pregnant. And you got to think, he probably got, uh, well, I don't know about him, but I would assume most men would immediately get livid, right? That's the first response for men is anger first and then rational thought later. Uh, just fury would set in and she would say, no, 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 you have to understand. I didn't cheat on you. Sure, 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 oh yeah, sure, right? Oh, that's believable. That's rich. I don't know if you know how babies are made, but that's not how it happens. And it's never happened that way before. It always requires husband and wife or man and woman. And that's a problem. You see, from the very beginning of the arrival of Jesus is designed to be offensive. Designed. His arrival is designed to be off-putting to the human soul so that we cannot shape him into our image. You see, if he's born like any other kid, he can be any other kid. He can be any other person. He can be any other teacher. He can be any other thing. But this guy can't, can he? From the very beginning, he's demanding a total faith commitment from the very start. How did he show up? Well, there's a story about that, didn't it? Jesus shows up in a miracle. That an unmarried couple who's not partaking in marital activity suddenly find themselves pregnant. Whoa. What do we do with that? And it's interesting how much of even American culture today can not handle this. You deal with any realm of you know, academia, you go to the college uh, campus, the universities. I mean, the worst are religion professors in universities. Never, never listen to religion professors in universities. They're terrible, terrible to listen to. Because they've done, in essence, what we so often do is to say, my senses rule the day. What I see, what I hear, what I smell, what I know, the scientific method is the determinant for truth. And the scientific scientific method tells me this cannot happen. 
It can't. It's too offensive. It's, it's too ridiculous that God would step inside time and space and make a child that has DNA that is comprised of Mary and comprised of heaven. And you see, even to begin the story of Jesus, it requires us, it demands us to bend the knee and listen. You see, even in his arrival, Jesus is making a claim on your life and a claim on my life. That if I'm going to interact with Christ, it's not going to be on my terms. It's not going to be the way that I want. He's not going to be what I would design for a Savior. He's going to be so much better. But in order for me to understand that, I have to meet Him on His terms. And in this case, it doesn't fit science, does it? Children aren't made this way. They're not. This one was. This one was. The Lord Jesus is of a virgin, absolutely. And all of Christianity depends on that truth. Because God has said it. You realize if that's not true, we lose the whole thing. We lose the resurrection. We lose hope of heaven. We lose the second coming. We lose all vindication in the life to come. We lose lose it all. Which surprisingly, and not surprisingly, I guess, is why so many of... False teachers have gone after this. He demands from the very beginning, he shows up in this wonderfully offensive thing. It's offensive to our our reason. It's offensive to our logic. It is a stumbling block that if you prize logic as the standard for truth, you will never come to know Christ, who is the fountain of logic. He is the logos itself. That's what John calls him. But it doesn't stop there in the story. It continues on. Where Joseph is, he loves this woman, he's wrestling through this tension of, I love her, do I believe her? I mean, uh, let's be honest, that actually is a question that would have to have crossed his mind at some point. Like, is she actually telling the truth or is she just, you know, lying? Which one is she, which one is, and he wrestles through this and you get to the point, um, All right, 19, he's unwilling to put her away. He's going to divorce her quietly because he loves her. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, that's not quite strong enough in the language, right? The translation is a little soft there. He is agonizing over this decision. He can't figure out which way to go. Do I believe Mary? Do I not? Do I believe science? Do I not? Do I believe, oh, the thousands of years of human history and how every child ever has been made? Or do I believe my betrothed? And then it happens. In a dream, the angel of the Lord appears to him. And again, remember, those aren't the like little naked babies that we have on all our little pins in the refrigerator magnets. A terrible idea. They're creatures of fire, uh, burning and terrifying in all sorts of ways. Appears to him in a dream. And interestingly, doesn't actually have to say, don't be afraid. Think about that. How many times in the scriptures do you ever see an angel interact with anybody and they don't have to lead with don't be afraid? I'll give you a hint. It doesn't happen. Not much. Joseph in his dream is able to interact with the angel and you see here is a man of quiet faith that the angel begins to speak to him. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
Don't be afraid. She's actually telling the truth. It's amazing. It is a virgin birth. It's never happened before. She's telling the truth. Don't be afraid. Just, just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Interesting. Don't be, not mention fear of the angels, fear of Mary. For that which is conceived is her, in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so now you have this tremendous burden placed upon him. The second thing we see, right? First is the Lord Christ is an offense even in the virgin birth. He's a stumbling block in that way. The second is that he demands faith. Right? You don't just interact with Christ and say, well, okay, the story of Jesus is neat. The story of Jesus is, well, it's a good moral story. It's kind of helpful, I guess. It can maybe help me make my life better if I follow some of his principles. I don't get in trouble quite so much. Right? I did that in middle school. I remember those days. If I at least just listen to what the Sunday school teacher says, I won't get in trouble as much, and I guess that's enough. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, actually, the problem here is that Jesus at the very, even in his existence, is making a claim that you have to believe him to know him. Not only does this uh, tragic virgin birth start the story where it doesn't make sense to science, but now is this question placed before God's people to say, will you believe or will you not? Will you listen or will you not? Will you submit yourself to God's word or will you not? Will you humble yourself or will you not? You see, we don't get that privilege of interacting with God on our own terms again. He doesn't play by my rules. He's not the God of my design. He's not made in my image. I'm not the boss. And this is, I would say, particularly challenging for Americans. American Christians, because we have been raised in a culture where the ethos, the the life of our culture is that I am my own boss. Right? You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me how to vote. You can't tell me who I should support politically. You can't tell me how I'm supposed to live my life. You can't tell me anything about who I am. And it's interesting, at the very beginning, the demand that Jesus makes is, oh, I will tell you, and in order to meet me, you will have to believe. It's not on your terms. It's on His. The offense of faith, it doesn't stop there. continues on in dealing even with sin. The offense of repentance. As if it weren't bad enough, a virgin birth, maybe I could swallow that. That's, I mean, that, that's kind of crazy, but maybe I could get by it if I just believe, and that would be enough, right? Just, just believe and you'll be all right. As long as you believe hard enough, you'll be okay. But it doesn't stop there. It continues to deal with this unbelievable and inconvenient thing called sin, right? The angel comes to Joseph in the dream and says, don't be afraid of Mary. You should still marry her. It's okay. You love her. It's all right. She's not lying. Understand that the child that she carries is special. He's from the Holy Spirit, which would have been pretty profound to hear. Uh, But then you you hear what he's actually going to do. This child, he's a son, he's going to be born. His name is going to be called Joshua, the Lord's salvation, the the God is mighty to save. And his mission, what he will do is he will save his people from their sins. The very essence of what this child will accomplish is the removal of sin. 
salvation from it, to be brought from death into life, to be brought from bondage into freedom, to be taken from the grasp of sin and brought into redemption. Which if you've grown up in the church is a story you've heard all of your life, but you've probably forgotten some of the emotion that deals in that conversation. I don't like to be told that I'm a sinner. You married folks, how often do you like it when your spouse, maybe gently or maybe not quite so gently, points out your failings? It kind of stings, doesn't it? It makes you mad. Well, men, it makes you mad. I'll leave the other side to them, own ends. We don't like to deal with sin. We like to deal with self. We like to deal with our own pleasures. We like to deal with our own desires. We don't like to wrestle with sin. And it's interesting, again, the very essence of who this child is, is salvation. And he would provide it by dying on a cross and again demanding from his people faith and repentance. You can't just say, I believe him and everything's fine, everything's hunky-dory if I just believe I have to repent of sin. We talked about this in Sunday school. To have the weight of sin, the heinousness, the sorrow, to hate it and attempt to turn from it and to flee unto Jesus. That's pretty hard, isn't it? That's an offensive message. I mean, have you ever actually, like recently, have you had a conversation with a non-believer and said, part of what is required to, to be with Jesus is you have to turn from sin? go over the last time you said that? All right, if in the South, actually, most of the time people are like, oh, great, I'll see you at church on Sunday. And then never show. It's hard. It's demanding. It's difficult. It doesn't stop there. It actually continues on. The text here shows the last offense that we're going to look at here where you shall call his name Jesus, verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. 22, Matthew explains to us all, kind of gives us an insight of the uh, author here. Uh, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and quotes Isaiah here, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So he is the fulfillment of prophecy. We're going to actually focus on verse 24, though. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son and called his name Jesus. And I just want to zoom in just for a second. Again, think about the the difference between boys and girls. To think about what is required for Joseph to do this. One, Joseph is required to step into Mary's shame. You realize that the second the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and made her pregnant, she was automatically stigmatized for the rest of her life. I mean, it's a small town, right? Small town, everybody knows everybody's business, and everybody can count to nine, right? They can all count to nine. They can do the math. It's not really obvious. They know. She would have been marked with that forever. And by Joseph choosing to marry her, he claims that shame for himself. It's not his fault. He did nothing wrong, neither did Mary. 
He had no shame that belonged to him. He could have divorced her and the shame would have stayed with her and followed her and he could have remarried and been fine. But instead, the the demand for obedience is such that he gives up his honor. He gives up his glory and he steps into her shame with her. He marries her. And then this is interesting, again, thinking about it and the differences between boys and girls, but um, there is one activity that freshly married men particularly are excited about joining in on. And in obedience to the Lord, he doesn't. He doesn't. He could have upon marriage. That is the right of the husbands and the wives. I mean, we're told we shouldn't forsake that. That's actually something we're supposed to do regularly. But he actually doesn't take advantage of the marital joys that he could have. He waits. Making it obvious that this is indeed a virgin birth, not just a preemie, right? There's no chance here. He, He hasn't actually known her at all. And then names his son, that's not his son, by the name that he was given. You see, Joseph does something spectacular here, demonstrating again this last offensive aspect of the character of Jesus is that it requires obedience. It demands obedience. Who Jesus is demands that we obey him. He is the son of God. Not the son of Joseph. He is the son of Joseph, but not the son of Joseph. Stepson. And he makes claim on our lives that we are to obey him. You see, this person of who Jesus is, is one that we do not like to engage with so much at this time of year. I was watching TV two nights ago, actually, on a television show, and uh, they made a running gag about the little baby Jesus. And it was shockingly offensive because they were reducing him to a little baby, just like any other little baby. Because little babies are safe. They're pudgy and they look like aliens or potatoes. And they're normal-looking things and we just like them. And they're safe and they're fun and they smell nice until they smell really bad. And that's what we so much want to reduce Jesus to. Because that doesn't make claim to our lives. Right? That's not one who was born of a virgin of a miracle. He is the divine Son of God. That's not one that requires faith for me. That's not one that requires repentance for me. That's not one that demands my obedience. You see, that's actually why we read the Jude passage. It's because you see so clearly contrasted those in the church that have rejected that Christ and those that have not. And it's interesting, the contrast, the ends of the spectrum are not belief in Jesus or not hatred, you know, hatred of Jesus, disbelief in Jesus. And it's not that, right? If you ever grew up as a kid, it's not the contrast between Christianity and like Satanism or something like that. It's not that at all. The contrast is belief in Jesus or belief in me. That's the contrast. That's what Jude lays out for us. That's what Matthew is challenging us to do. Will I believe and repent to and obey the Lord Christ? Or will I be filled with me? Now we're getting ready to come to the Lord's table. This is Jesus' table. Not little baby Jesus. King mighty reigning in heaven right now, Jesus. We come to his table. And those demands have not changed. 
Faith, repentance, and obedience. Now, are we ever going to have those things perfectly? (sighs) Yeah, we will, but not in this place. Right? I look forward to having those things perfectly. I won't have them in this place, though. I'll have that in glory. But this is what that table is for, right? These are the, the, the guidelines for who's welcome to this fellowship meal. Whoever's welcome to this fellowship meal must re- meet these requirements. They must have faith in Christ, repentance unto Christ, and obedience to Christ. Now, we have kind of different categories for what that looks like. They need to be a member of a Bible-believing church that has been admitted to the table by the session. You get to watch a whole bunch of people do that this morning, right? They've been admitted to the table by the session of the church. Welcome. But it doesn't kind of rule out a number of people. One is it it rules out children. Right? Because children, we don't believe they understand all enough to understand the virgin birth. Right? At five years old, you don't get that, thankfully. You shouldn't know how those things work yet. Right? Uh, You don't understand all of what faith means, all of what repentance means, all of what obedience means. So we hold off on that until the elders admit. If you're an unbeliever, don't come to the table. You're going to only end up eating and drinking judgment upon yourself because this is a time where another miracle takes place. And this is why this is so special. This is why the church has made such a big deal over it for you know, 2,000 years. Is that the virgin birth was a miracle where God stepped into time and space and gave a child to a young Jewish girl. Here he's going to do something different where instead of stepping inside time and space... He's going to, in some sense, spiritually pull us out of it. Where instead of him coming and sitting on the other side of the table, he pulls us up to the table in heaven. And he's going to take our souls and spiritually feed us. And we're going to eat bread, and you'll eat a, what, calorie and a half, and you'll eat and you drink a half ounce of juice, third of an ounce, and your tummy will still rumble because you're still hungry. But your soul will be fed in heaven. By this great king who demands faith and repentance and obedience. You see, this table is not open for those who are filled with self. If you want to do it your way, don't come to the table. You can go have your own meal afterwards. Talk to me so we can get that fixed. But don't come to this. If you are filled with self, if you're filled with you want to do it your way, you want to live your way, you want to have your own lifestyle, your own actions, your own consequences, this is not the time for you. This is the time for those people that are filled with faith and repentance and obedience and recognizing the frailty of all of those. Recognizing the weakness in my faith. Honestly, I mean, really and truly, how little suffering would it take for all of our faith to waver? The correct answer is not much. How quickly do I repent? (laughs) You could ask my wife, right? Ask children's parents, how quickly do we repent? How righteous is our obedience? You see, it's for people who desperately need help in those things. Because forgiveness is only of the Lord Christ and no one else. Father in heaven, we thank you. For the Lord Jesus, we thank you for the virgin birth. We thank you for faith and repentance and obedience, which are gifts from on high. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for our lack of repentance, our disobedience. Forgive us for being filled with self. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.